Our Father, we thank you that we know that the Lord Jesus is coming back. And we pray that you help us to um, read your word from Joel in light of that coming. And not only read, but understand. Not only understand, but believe. Not only believe, but live in light of the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so we commit this time to you, Father. We pray that you will uh, work by your Spirit through your word in our hearts and our lives. Uh, convict us and uh, encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you a story about justice. Imagine a certain accountant fiddles the books of your company, swipes the money, and you get blamed. Is justice done? No, it's not done, is it? Suppose you get hauled up before your company directors and suspended from your work as a result. Is justice done? No. Suppose your colleagues now shun you because they don't want to be associated with you because they don't want to be implicated in what you're supposed to have done. Is justice done? No. But suppose the police investigate the matter and discover that it wasn't you but rather the accountant. And so he's arrested and taken to court and sent to jail. You are reinstated with profound apologies from your company and your colleagues. You are given a handsome compensation for all the distress that's been caused. And you're given a promotion because of the way you conducted yourself through the ordeal. Is justice done? Yes, it is. Now, if I stop that story anywhere before the end, it would seem like it was a story about injustice. But because you listen to the end of the story, you know that it's a story about justice. And if we look at our world from any vantage point except the vantage point of the end, we will conclude it's about injustice. But today, we are looking at the end. The prophet Joel takes us to the very end of time to help us see God's justice. And not only God's justice, but God's salvation. Now, of course, God's justice is many-faceted. Joel doesn't write about all the aspects of it here. He doesn't talk about how God weighs up all the deeds of the individual done according to what he has done. All those the many aspects of God's judgment that are not dealt with here. But the main aspect of God's judgment, the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us through Joel 3, is about how God deals with those who oppress his people. Joel, you remember, is writing to God's people in Judah. And while we don't know exactly when it was, we know it's at least a few hundred years before Christ. Could be 500, could be 700, doesn't matter. Remember in Joel 1, we saw that the nation had been overrun with locusts, terrible plague, destroyed all the crops, caused a mighty famine. And God's people were called to repent and turn back to Him. And then in chapter 2, we saw that, that there was another judgment that was planned for the future. It was called the Day of the Lord. And while it was described in categories of the locusts, which in turn were like an invading army, the, the judgment was actually either about or at the very least pointing forward to another bigger judgment to come that has been so big that there's nothing like it in history in the past or in the future. 
And beyond that judgment, there was to be a restoration. Israel will be restored. And after that, God's Spirit would be poured out on all His people. Something that we know happened soon after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we realize the day of the Lord, the day when God's people were truly judged for their sins, came at the cross, where Jesus, the true Israel, bore the great judgment of God against the sin of his people on a dark and gloomy day, a day like no other ever before it or after it. And that in the resurrection of Jesus, Israel was restored. And God's people were given new life. The judgment was reversed. And after that, at Pentecost, God's Spirit was poured out on all His people. But the end of Joel 2 anticipates another day of the Lord. Another day of the Lord which comes after the pouring out of the Spirit, which happens after the day of the Lord. Remember what it says, Joel 2 verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be survivors in Zion and Jerusalem. Keeping your bookmark in Joel 3, come with me to Romans 10. Romans chapter 10. Page 1140. 1140. Romans chapter 10. Let's see what the Apostle Paul says. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved what's the basis of that? down in verse 13 for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord Leave in your heart God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a quote from where? Joel, isn't it? So what does it mean, going back to Joel, what does it mean in Joel's terms to, to, to be in Mount Zion? To be in Jerusalem? To escape? It means to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Because you see, the real Zion, the thing that Zion of the Old Testament was a shadow of, is a place where all God's people are gathered. It is God's place. Zion in the Old Testament, that's the, that's the hill on which the temple is. It's in Jerusalem. It's where the hill on which Jerusalem is built. And it's God's place. 
And then in the end that is fulfilled in the new Jerusalem, in the new creation. And right now the real place of God is, is in Christ, isn't it? This is confirmed when you go to Hebrews 12. Come with me to Hebrews 12. Keeping Joel 3, go to Hebrews 12. Page 1213. Page 1213. I'm on Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 and look at verse 22 but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all to the spirit of the righteous spirit of the right spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where is Mount Zion now? Where is the true Zion? It is with God. It is Jesus and God's people, all the angels, all God's people alive and dead, gathered around Him now. And you have come there if you are in Christ. That is why Paul can take this verse from Joel 2 and apply it to those who confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised Him from the dead because it is those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in Him, who are truly in Zion, who truly belong. For to be in Zion, to be among the people of God, to be in the true Jerusalem is to be in Christ. And so now, we are at the period at the end of Joel 2. The day of the Lord has come in the death of Jesus for those who put their trust in Him. The day of the Lord is still coming for the rest of the world. God is bringing the nations to judgment. And God calls people now from every nation to repent, to come into Zion, to believe in Jesus before that day. Now, having understood that from Joel 2, now we're in a position to look at the prophecy in Joel 3. And Joel 3 describes the future judgment. Again, it's described in the categories of the past. The pictures painted here are not meant to be literal. Old Testament prophecy often isn't meant to be literal. It's often in, in picture form, using, using familiar categories to describe unimaginable things and the fact is, now that we have the New Testament, we have seen the unimaginable things more clearly, and so we can understand these prophecies better. And it's so in the first half of chapter 3. The pictures are of armies, of harvests, of people sold into slavery. But the reality it points to is God's wrath against the nations for the way they've treated His people. From chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and divided up my land 
and have cast lots for my people and traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So God's gathering all the nations to judgment because of the way they've treated his people. The enemies of God have treated his people abominably and God took it personally. The way they treated them is the way they treated him. And so he says in verse 4, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? See, he's taking it personally when they, when they do bad things to his people. If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head, swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and carried my rich treasures to your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own borders. They have treated God badly and God will, God will turn the tables on them. He will bring them into account for what they have done. They will get to taste their own medicine. Verse 7. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hands of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. See, God is judging the nations. Got that imagery of slavery, of armies. We see it here. The nations, in, in this prophetic imagery now, you'll see that God, God, God calling the nations to come for war. He's bring them all together. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men, the soldiers, the warriors. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. But then it's not just the soldiers. Next verse you see, even the farmers are coming for war. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. So rash are people who think they can fight God and come for this war against Him. Even people who can't fight. See, it says that let the weak say, I am a warrior. People who are physically weak, like, say, accountants, call themselves warriors and, and come for the fight. And so everybody comes in, in opposition to God. Verse 11. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. You see, the nations think they are coming to fight against God. They're going to come for war. But God is behind it. And God is actually gathering them for judgment. In fact, the word Jehoshaphat means Yahweh has judged. The valley of Jehoshaphat is the place of judgment. And then the imagery changes. The point is still being made. It's still meant to picture all the nations of the earth gathered together in this valley to try and fight against God. But the picture changes to that of agriculture. Verse 13. 
Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for the evil is great. You see? They're all together there, and what happens? The nations are cut up, taken off, like a, like a wheat harvest that has been gathered. Or it's like when they're, you know, trampling the grapes to make the wine. Back in those days, they used to have a big place where they put all the grapes and they all stand there and trample, trample, trample the grapes to get out all the juice to make the wines. That's what it's a picture of. Come for judgment. Huge, huge numbers of them. Verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of the decision. You see, in, in, in this imagery you've got masses and masses of people trampled, crushed, harvested, judged. There's, there's no safety in numbers on that day. And on that day, even the lights of the heavens are dark. Verse 15. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. Remember, that's what happened on the day of the Lord before, when Jesus died. That's what happens on this final day of the Lord. God is acting to punish the nations. The whole world trembles before him. Verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But on the other hand, the same God who roars in judgment, the God before whom the heavens and the earth tremble, is the God who looks after his people. Verse 16 continues, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. A refuge, what is a refuge? A refuge is a place where you can be safe. You see, God is terrifying to his enemies, but to his people, he is the source of security and protection. On the day of the Lord, you cannot hide from God, but you can hide in him and his people. Those who belong to him. Those who dwell with him in the heavenly Zion. Those who are in the true Israel, Jesus Christ. They will not only be safe from his judgment that is poured out upon his enemies, but enjoy his presence forever. Verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again be passed through it. See, God will be with his people. They'll never again be harmed by outsiders. He'll protect them. He'll be with them. And being with God in his place means enjoying his blessing. Verse 18. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and, val- and water the valley of Shittim. What a beautiful picture. You see the picture? You've got the temple in the center and water is flowing out of that to provide blessing to the land. 
And if you go to a river in Judah, God's place, you might find it flowing with beautiful fresh water. Or you might find it flowing with milk. Or you might find it flowing with sweet wine. Wow. You see, we're, we're still in picture language, aren't we? And this time the picture is like, what is it like? What's the picture like? It's a picture of what? Yeah, it's God's place, isn't it? It's, it's, like, it's like the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Just, just, just better. God has got Eden restored in, on an even higher better. But the enemies of God's people who are typified by Egypt and Edom, well, their lot is the opposite of the Garden of Eden. Verse 19. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So you see the picture of the end? God's people are in God's place under God's blessing and rule, just like in Eden, but better and forever. And the God who dwells among them and blesses them is the God who, first of all, punishes his enemies. So what are the implications of that for today? Well, it all depends on which side of the fence we are, doesn't it? If we are not God's people... If we are among the nations that oppose them, then, then we must expect God's judgment. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in 2 Thessalonians. Come with me. Our New Testament reading today was 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 and 9. Well, we won't look at verse 8 and 9. We'll look for a bit, from a bit earlier than that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Go to 2 Thessalonians 1, page 1191. Page 1191. Paul's writing to Christians in Thessalonica. It says they are worthy of the kingdom of God because they're suffering. And verse 6 says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who will believe. You see, the day that Jesus comes back, he will afflict those who afflict them he will not only grant them relief, but he will bring vengeance on those who do not obey God and who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And that vengeance is seen in eternal destruction away from the presence of God forever. See, what Joel wrote about in prophetic imagery, the Apostle Paul paints in, in sharper focus. 
punishment for the oppressors of God's people and those who don't obey the gospel. So don't oppose God. It doesn't work in the end. God takes it personally when people attack his people. You remember what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus when he'd been persecuting Christians? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Cannot get away with it. If you are opposing God and you are opposing His people, be afraid. For the day of the Lord will surely come and He will bring about His judgment. But if we are God's people, if our judgment has already passed on the day of the Lord 2,000 years ago at the cross, then the coming day is a day of great joy. We will be safe on that day because the Lord is our refuge. We will live with God forever as His people. In His place, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion, the holy city, the new creation. Under His perfect blessing and rule. Where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And God will be our God and we will be His people. Knowing Him and loving Him and serving Him without fear, without doubt, without sin, forever. We've got that to look forward to. And before that, God will see to it that justice is done. Remember, God takes it personally when His people are attacked. He will vindicate His people. Jesus was vindicated. He had been greeted happily by the people and acclaimed as their king on that first Palm Sunday. By Friday, he had been hung up on the cross. Yet God turned the tables and raised him from the dead. And those who opposed him and crucified him will one day stand before him as their judge. As God vindicated Jesus, God will vindicate his people. I know number of people in our smack ACA community that get really badly persecuted by family who cannot accept that they follow Jesus. They stand firm. And they do that without despairing at the unjust treatment they suffer because they know that God will vindicate His people. People in our workplace can curse us and isolate us. They can slander us. They can gossip about us. They can say all kinds of evil things against us that aren't true. Many of us know what that's like. But we can press on and we can do so without doing the same thing back to them because we know that God will vindicate His people. People in our country can try and restrict our freedoms. They can try and stop the propagation of the word of God. They can try and intimidate us. They can put up posters and say, we are watching you. See those? They can even threaten bloodshed. But we're not going to get too worried. And we're not going to threaten them in return because we know that God will vindicate his people. And so friends, we can be patient now in the midst of opposition and persecution. No need to fight fire with fire. No need to take things into our own hands. And no need to despair. 
because the day of the Lord will come. Justice will be done. God will come and we will be with him. And in the end, that's the only thing that matters. Let's pray.